everybody, Isaac here. This episode comes with a quick disclaimer. We recorded this on the week of American Independence Day, and some very inconsiderate neighbors of mine decided that just a few minutes after we started the podcast would be the perfect time to start shooting off illegal fireworks. The original audio literally had fireworks in the background for at least 90% of it, and Brad made a heroic effort to remove those sounds, but you'll definitely start to hear them towards the end. So when part of the podcast sounds like I'm recording live from Inside Heroes Duty, that's why. We hope you enjoy this excellent episode nonetheless. Gonna talk about a film if you know what I mean. Got an edit that's smoother than a limousine. Cause I'm Pato to Casti in 3.5. Baby, you got the keys. Now pot up and cast, 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 cast. Pot up and cast. Reverse of shut up and podcast. <laughs> I really thought, you know, shut up and podcast is, is just a very funny idea. Yeah. <laughs> and now we present our podcast, 90 Minutes of Room Tone. <laughs> or I guess we could talk about a movie. I mean, let's do that. Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon, talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello. That's right. Uh, wreck it, Rue Coleman herself is here. <laughs> I'm gonna wreck it. <laughs> well, excuse me. <laughs> I was doing that. I'm going to wreck it. But I'll know. tell you one of the many, you know, bits of research I did was I found this per usual. You can find videos on YouTube of the cast like recording their lines. And there was this really funny bit with Jack McBrayer where he was recording specifically the I can fix it for the game. Yeah. And, you know, he's talking to the director who's like, you know, OK, so it should be very presentational. You know, this is what everyone hears when they start the game Fix of Felix. And, you know, McBrayer's like, OK, OK, OK. Uh-huh. And then he gives him three different readings. You know, it's like, I can fix it. I can fix it. You know, he gives him the three different readings. And then the guy's like, good. OK, now we're going to do that about 100 more times. And his <laughs> face just falls. Like. <laughs> so, you know, I, I should have made you do over 100 different records until we got it right. But uh <laughs> Instead, we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. You stink brain. (laughs) This week on the program, we are continuing Disney's revival era with 2012's Wreck-It Ralph, directed by Rich Moore, who definitely was more rich after (laughs) making this successful movie. Folks... Folks, (laughs) Folks, <laughs> folk, can I get a badum tish in here? Badum tish. Mom, what does this here movie mean to you? I love this movie. I loved it since the first time we saw it. It's got video game references, which is super fun. And I love video games. It's got great animation. It's got an excellent story. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> 
Yeah, I uh, pretty much feel the same way. It's a terrific movie. It really holds up beautifully. Yeah. I think it's definitely one of my favorites, possibly my single favorite of the revival era. And I do have a bit of a story about seeing this for the first time in 2012. I was so excited for this when it was coming out because 2012 was when I was, you know, Really excited, really getting excited about video games and really kind of deciding that, like, that was my passion and that's what I was going to do. You know, obviously, I've loved video games for a very long time, but that's when I was like reading everything about them and really starting to appreciate them as an art form and thinking that I would go into the games industry. I'm sure many of our listeners, in fact, I know for a fact many of our listeners come from my work on uh, websites like Hey Poor Player and other places where I talked about video games. Yeah. A job that almost entirely killed my love for the medium. I could like barely play video games <laughs> for about a year to two years after I quit. Just had no more passion for them. What an absolutely horrible industry that no one should work in ever. But uh, I, I had not yet had my innocence shattered. So I was very excited about video games. So I was very excited about this video game movie. And I was really excited about the references and stuff. I was following it from when it was first announced and they just put out the picture of the bad anon meeting. Yeah. And it was like, wow, it's a Disney movie and there's Eggman and, you know, Bowser in the <laughs> same room. Ah! And the Pac-Man goes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I was super excited and it came out. It came out November 3rd. My birthday's November 4th. Uh-huh. Did our uh-huh. listeners get me anything this year? <laughs> Selfish. <laughs> and so past guest, who I was not yet dating, Bailey Wendell, organized kind of a surprise party after school. We were all going on the 4th. We were all going to go see this movie. Very exciting. And I had no idea about this until... Another mutual friend of ours was saying something like, hey, Isaac, are you excited for what you're going to be doing tonight? And I was like, what? I I didn't think we were doing anything tonight. And, uh, you know, everybody else at the lunch table was like, shut up, shut up, shut up. (laughs) And he was like, oh, okay, I wouldn't want to wreck it. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I well, I get what that means. Thank you very much. Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the surprise part of the party was a, a complete failure thanks to that. But <laughs> still an extremely nice gesture. It was an extremely fun time. Uh, Bailey and I both went with our dates who were different people at the time. And I I mean, I really did love it. Like it really worked for me. I was kind of surprised at first how much the references weren't a part of it mm-hmm. and like how much time we were spending in sugar rush and stuff. But over time, you know, I've realized that's actually the much better way to do it. And, you know, I still really loved it. Really, you know, I really dug it. And again, it, it just holds up beautifully. I, I can't believe this movie's 10 years old. <laughs> but I mean, it could come out today and it would still be one of the best Disney movies. It's true. Looks great. Sounds great. This is going to be a great episode. Dog's Breakfast of a sequel, but we'll get to that as well. (laughs) So this movie starts with a guy named Rich Moore. It's director and one of the four people uh, involved in writing it, although he doesn't, you know, have a screenplay credit. 
And Rich Moore was, I think he made a very smart choice. He graduated from Cal Arts in 1987, around a little after the you know time we've we've talked about people graduating from Cal Arts. Uh, he wasn't in the most famous class, but he was in a class with some other people who would go on to find success, like Andrew Stanton, Brenda Chapman. Mm-hmm. And I think he made a very smart choice, which is that he looked at the world of feature animation in the 1980s and went into television. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Bronze Era. So he was most notably one of the original three directors of The Simpsons. He directed 17 episodes in the first five seasons, including, among others, Marge versus the Monorail, which is often considered one of the very best episodes and definitely one of the most interesting from an animation perspective because it closes with this big action scene. Ah. Worked on many great episodes, won a Primetime Emmy Award for his work. From there, he went to The Critic, uh, which was a kind of spin-off series from The Simpsons, not literally a spin-off, but it involved a lot of the same people and it ended up crossing over. And of course, from there, he went to Futurama, which was, I mean, a- another Matt Groening show. So, you know, he kind of stayed in The Simpsons world and adjacent to it for about 20 years, which is good work if you can get it yeah. for sure. And he ended up winning another uh, Emmy Award for Roswell That Ends Well, which I believe is considered another beloved episode. I'll be honest, I'm I'm not as much into Futurama personally, but I know my friends who are love that episode. So uh, clearly it's good award winning. And so after doing that for about 20 years, he was apparently pretty good friends with John Lasseter. And so he was invited to come be a director at Walt Disney Animation. And he wasn't so sure about this because he was like, I don't know that I can do, you know, princessy stuff, fairy tale <laughs> stuff. Like, obviously, he's been working on all these things that have a very irreverent kind of sense of humor. Right. They're a little more, you know, adult is is maybe not exactly the right word, but. I think you know what I mean. Yep. And Lasseter was like, that's actually exactly the sensibilities that I want you to bring. And I want you to, you know, have your own style. And he handed him a project which had been percolating since the late 80s, early 90s, which was, I mean, I think this was probably a Katzenberg idea or at least came up in the Katzenberg era, which was video games are big. We should do a movie about them. (laughs) I mean, a very kind of cynical uh, idea there. And so I couldn't find out too much about the other video game movies they tried. Yeah, there was something called Joe Jump. There was something called High Score. But they start working on this movie and more. The problem he had was he was like, I don't understand how video game characters could be a good movie because they have no free will. <laughs> Quote from a Huffington Post interview. They have this computer program that tells them what they're supposed to do and when they're supposed to do it. And then they have to follow that program doing the exact same job day in, day out over and over and over again. Who would want to watch a movie about a bunch of characters doing something like that? <laughs> and the idea that he landed on was what if a character didn't want to do that. What if they tried to break out from that routine? Yeah. And their initial idea. So he gets together his writing team, which is Phil Johnston, who becomes his writing partner and co-directs the sequel. 
Jim Reardon, who I don't know too much about, but he's been involved at Disney and a lot of stuff. He's been involved with The Simpsons and a lot of stuff. Uh, And Jennifer Lee, who is, of course, incredibly important, as she's now the head of Disney Animation Studios. Yep. And the four of them were the ones really writing this story. Phil Johnston got the uh, screenplay credit eventually. And they had the idea for Fix-It Felix Jr. And the idea was that he was going to be dealing with pressure from his dad. (laughs) Fix-It Felix Jr. didn't want to go into the family business of video games. (laughs) They were kind of working on that. And then they developed, well, you know, who's the bad guy of Fix-It Felix Jr.? Well, Wreck-It Ralph. And as they were kind of working on this version of the movie, they were having way more fun with Wreck-It Ralph. They found him much more interesting and much more entertaining as a character. And of course, the, the rest of it comes from there. And I think that's absolutely the right idea. Because Wreck-It Ralph being a villain, that gives him this inherent conflict rather than establishing that Fix-It Felix Jr. and a hypothetical Fix-It Felix like Pac-Man and Pac-Man Jr. are actual literal father and son that have a like father. Like that's too much, right? That's (laughs) that's kind of a uh, don't you think? Yeah, that's like a hat on a hat as far as the, you know, one big lie premise for the story. I think making it the villain much cleaner. Especially because they made it so that the villains aren't necessarily villains in their everyday life. This bad guy job is a job that they do. Right. It doesn't necessarily define them, which is kind of the whole, you know, point behind what starts Ralph on his journey. I like that as an idea. You're not your job. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly. That's such a, a good idea to hit on. And I have to say also, it's it's funny, and this is something I'm pretty sure you don't know, that abandoned idea that isn't as good about Fix-It Felix doesn't want to follow his dad, that's almost exactly the plot of the Emoji movie. Uh, <laughs> I do not know that because I know nothing about the Emoji movie. It's absolutely horrible. It's It's the nadir <laughs> um, <laughs> and so yeah what can you say they they developed the story from there they obviously went through a lot of different versions they spent four years working on it rich Moore, he definitely was a, a gamer he really enjoyed video games uh, there's a great article he wrote for the new york times blog arts beat which is defunct but you can still find it in their archives called game theory the passion behind wreck it ralph And he talks a bit about his love of video games and how he actually made the team spend work hours playing games like Donkey Kong, (laughs) Halo and Mario Kart are the three that they played the most, because obviously that pretty closely correlates to Wreck-It Ralph and Heroes Duty and Sugar Rush. Yep. He did this not because they were trying to do specific parodies of those games, which is good, but to get the visuals right and to make sure his whole team understood, like, how does a video game move? What is a video game like? Which shows, I mean, it really, really shows. Yeah. They also hilarious. I honestly think Rich Moore might have. Uh, I'm joking about this, but you could almost accuse him of structuring this movie around things he wanted to do, because in addition to playing video games on work hours, they apparently went to several candy companies and got a bunch of free candy mm. to model for Sugar Rush. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
We didn't eat it. Good, good scam, Richmore. I appreciate that. Again, good work if you can get it. <laughs> exactly. Get that paper. And by paper, I mean the wrappers on some C's candy lollipops. <laughs> then the movie came out and it was very good. It had, I think, the biggest opening for a Disney movie up to that point. Made a ton of money at the box office. Was very well reviewed and still like today. Did you watch some of the deleted scenes and stuff? Not this time, but I have in the past. And they are just... Mm. I know that for a long time he was Chewbacca looking. Like he was right. super hairy. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like a bunch of the Tangled animators were like, we'll go on strike. (laughs) (laughs) But that is actually, I feel like after Tangled, they're often trying to kind of sneak in a big, I'll not sneak in, but they're trying to include a big technological development in each movie because they can use that on future movies. And on this one, they did bi-directional reflectance distribution functions, which basically means they could have more realistic reflections. Very important for a movie that has, you know, a lot of metal and plastic. Yeah, I think what they did with having the different worlds that they built for each video game and the way they all look different and move different and act different and stuff, I feel like that's one of the best examples we have of Disney pushing the animation medium. I agree. Like they don't do it very often. And this is one of the few movies that you could definitely say this is definitely better as an animated movie than it would ever be as a live action movie. And I don't just mean because of the way it you know, this particular movie is great. Like you can do Beauty and the Beast as a live action movie and it can still be a good movie. Right. You know, that's not the problem with them doing the live action remakes. It's that they make them too similar. (laughs) Right. But this movie is a movie I feel like you got to do it in animation. That's the only way to make it look right. I agree. And I think also, you know, as you say, it's one where they can really let the visuals tell a lot of the story and bring a lot of character and also just like be a joy to look at. Exactly. They did have different visual directors for the three main game worlds. You know, they really gave them this very different feel, which the attention to detail given to all of that It's just fun. I mean, it's funny when you're like, oh, the Nicelanders move like video game characters. (laughs) But it also helps get you into this world, which is kind of a complicated world. I mean, I think one of the things Moore really understands reading the interviews with him is that, like, as he said, you know, the video game world is not interesting. It's not like a good world on its own. Like Toy Story, which, as we know, Lasseter thinks is the greatest movie ever made and needs to be the template for every Disney movie going forward. Yeah. And which I mean, come on, this is kind of Toy Story with video games, which are themselves a toy. But Toy Story as a premise is inherently interesting because you're everyone as a kid, had the idea of what if my toys are actually alive, right? Right. Almost everyone, like, has had that thought. Nobody thought, but perhaps the very, like, psychologically damaged would ever think that about a video game. You know, nobody's (laughs) like, oh, I wonder what these video games, you know, get up to when when I turn my computer off. It's like, nothing. What are you you talking about? (laughs) Um, So I think 
one of the things this movie does that's really smart is it's as he says, and as you pointed out, like it uses video games as a metaphor for like a job, Mm -hmm. right? You know, make it a metaphor. Don't spend too much time on the video game references and in the video game world, just enough that you get what's going on and you, you know, get the fun of being like, oh, that's the exclamation point from the Metal Gear Solid games. (laughs) But really, we need to focus on telling a real story about quote unquote real people trying to break out of their programming and and find meaning in their lives beyond just their jobs. And, you know, yeah. And I do, I I know I'm getting ahead, but I I do think that's one of the biggest problems with the sequel is that the sequel is so in love with like the internet world they've created at the expense of doing stuff with the characters that make sense. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the characters, mom, why don't you take us through the cast? Alrighty. Well, we've got John C. Riley as Wreck-It Ralph, a very good actor, very prolific, does so many different kinds of things. Yes. For Disney, he's in Guardians of the Galaxy as his name is Day, I think. He's on Nova Prime. Um, I don't think you've seen Kong Skull Island, but he's one of the funniest parts of that movie. He's like a castaway who's been stuck on the island for I don't remember how long, 20 years, 50 years. It's ridiculous. He's so funny. Yeah, I agree. He's extremely funny. My favorite comedy role of his is probably Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which is this great send up of just every music biopic like story structure, even (laughs) today. Like the new Elvis movie does this. That horrific Bohemian Rhapsody movie does this. I mean, It starts with, you know, this like perfectly filmed scene of it's this big concert towards the end of his life. Uh And he's like leaning against a wall, you know, with his hand on his forehead and he's thinking very carefully. And some like techie comes out and goes, you know, Mr. Cox, uh, you know, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Cox. And his friend stops him and goes. Before he plays, Dewey Cox has to remember his entire life. And then and it's like, yes, that's the scene they put in every movie. Can't recommend that uh, enough. He's also done a bunch of the Adam McKay, Will Ferrell comedies like Step Brothers, which right. I don't care for that mode as much, but a lot of people do. But he's also really good in dramatic roles. I love him in... I mean, so many things, but I will give a special shout out to Magnolia, one of my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movies. He's just incredible in that. Mm -hmm. And he's not really funny at all. I mean, in that he's basically like he's a bad cop. He's a little funny, maybe. And yeah, he's just and he's a great singer. I mean, he's been nominated for Grammy Awards. He was in Chicago. Yep, he does a great. I was going to say he does a great job in Chicago where he's the character who sings the song, Mr. Cellophane, and he really, really brings the emotion to it. Yeah, I watched that on Dad's recommendation uh, before Mm -hmm. recording this episode. I, I agree. He's great. What I think is great about him is that he manages to bring a really natural humanity to whatever he's doing, no matter how ridiculous he is. I mean, that's one of the things, even in Guardians, which is a pretty minor role, One of the great things he brings is that he feels like just a 
kind of a blue collar guy working in this yeah. very heightened. He just feels like a normal guy in this situation. Yeah, he's clocking in and clocking out and trying to do his best. And he's these characters are annoying because they're like messing up his day, you know. And I think that's so good for Wreck-It Ralph, who is like also in his own. He's like a blue collar video game worker. Essentially. <laughs> he don't get no respect, you know. Exactly. Uh, so he is incredibly funny. Is such great comedic timing, but he never loses the character in that. We've got Sarah Silverman as Vanellope von Schweetz. She's a comedian. She was on Saturday Night Live. She had her own TV series, of course. She's done a lot of voices since doing Wreck-It Ralph. She's, I mean, she's very funny. She does have a very uh, nasally voice, which I think works for Vanellope. I don't love her (laughs) voice all the time. (laughs) She's playing it up even more than this, but it is to some extent, you know, it's similar to her natural, like it's a natural quality in her voice. Yeah. And yeah, you to a certain extent, it already sounds like a cartoon character. So you buy it, which is very funny that like and I know Silverman and Riley like actually recorded a bunch of their stuff together, which is not usually the case. Yeah, I saw it seemed like that was a thing they were doing for this movie, which, as you said, is not usual, which is great. And they have such a natural chemistry. Yeah. And it's so funny because, again, he's playing I would say he's playing the cartoonier character, but with a more natural voice. She's playing the more grounded character with the cartoonier voice. It it somehow just works. It does. They're a good pairing. Speaking of cartoony voices. Jack McBrayer as Fix-It Felix Jr. <laughs> he does a lot of voice acting, especially we loved him in Wander Over Yonder as Wander. <laughs> the main character. The role he was, I mean, <laughs> made, that voice was made to portray that character. Very true. Yeah, I mean, he was a comedian. Uh, he's He was best known for the sitcom 30 Rock, which he's great in. Right, which I remember seeing commercials for, but I know absolutely nothing about the show otherwise. It's a fun show. It might be a little too cynical for your tastes. I don't know. You might like it. But he is playing in that uh, Kenneth the Page, which the page is this weird, weird version of an internship that NBC has mm-hmm. because it's a it's an NBC sitcom making fun of NBC sitcoms, you see, especially SNL. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's the same thing where he seems very cheerful and he's always like, oh, hello, you know, I'm the page. I'm here to get whatever. But he's actually like. A, a complete crazy person. <laughs> I mean, I think the most famous scene of that is somebody being, you know, asked him like, why are you so cheerful, Kenneth? Like, how do you keep it going? And he just like leans in very closely and he's like, it's because on the inside, I don't know if I can hold it together anymore. And he's like giving this whole speech, but while still looking very sweet and very smiley and having that, you know, nice Jack McBrayer voice. that's so friendly. Yeah. He really knows how to use his instrument. And yeah, he's done so much voice acting since since this. He's really been a voice actor, which, hey, you know, mm-hmm. again, like good money if you can get it. And he's really good at it. Yep. No, as you said, use that good instrument so well. <laughs> exactly. He's he's one of those guys like Patrick Orburton, where he's rarely the main character in things anymore. But anytime he pops up, I'm like, oh, 
So glad to see you. So glad you could make it to the movie or the TV show or whatever. Uh, I'm settling it in. This is going to be terrific. And of course, it goes without saying he's just, again, perfect for Felix because he's he has to be this boundless well of optimism. Until everything goes wrong. And why do I fix everything exactly. I touch? Again, it's a little bit like <laughs> Kenneth the Page it's like, OK, you're so like sweet and positive and optimistic that... It's become troubling, which is also kind of what Wander is, right? It's like, yeah, you are perhaps too much of this. <laughs> Jane Lynch as Sergeant Calhoun. She was very famous for doing that show Glee, which I think I saw one episode of. She's done a lot of voice acting, a lot of TV shows. Uh, if we watch any of that Big Hero 6, the series, apparently she's got a voice in that. She had worked with Riley previously in one of those Adam McKay, Will Ferrell comedies, Talladega Nights. Uh-huh. So kind of a reunion for them. She was apparently in Shrek 4, if you say so. I know. I, I was like, I didn't even see Shrek 4. So <laughs> Honestly, she's a great comedic talent. But if you look through your credits, there's a lot of like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> One really funny thing, watching her do the voice acting, the lines they wrote for Calhoun, we'll talk about it more, are so funny. <laughs> she could hardly say them without laughing. I bet. And the director really had to be like, you know, and, and I think she understood this. But, you know, in this video, the director's helping her through it. Like, it's funnier if Calhoun isn't delivering this in a funny way, doesn't think it's funny. Right. Like these need to be lines you say with a completely straight face, almost tossed off. Right. So she's having to like scowl through the whole recording session to keep mm -hmm. herself from not laughing, which is uh, and I mean, it it really like it works. It comes out terrific. She is possibly the funniest character in the whole movie. Yeah, I bet. And it works because the character doesn't know that she's funny. Yes, definitely. And a name we're going to hear a lot of going forward from here. Alan Tudyk has King Candy and Turbo. He will be in every single movie from here on out. Every single Disney movie, to be clear. Every single Disney movie, every single movie in the Disney animated canon we're going to be talking about. Yes, they decided to make him their John Ratzenberger after this. Yeah, but I think it's easy to say that this is his best role for Disney, especially because I think he enjoys like hiding his voice. So now he's usually you know, a chicken. He was wash on Firefly is what a lot of people know him from first, including us. Yes, he's been in many other things. Sometimes he just does voices like where he does K2SO in Rogue One. Technically, I guess he did some mocap. I just remember there was this interview with him about K2SO where he shared this great anecdote where he was talking to Anthony Daniels, C3PO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was so excited to meet him because he was such a Star Wars fan who wasn't. And Daniels was like, are you CG or are you wearing a suit? And he was like, uh, I think it's going to be a CGI character. And Daniels was like, I still have to wear the suit. <laughs> didn't want to say hi. Didn't want to talk about, you know, the craft or anything. He was like, I still have to put on that stupid gold outfit every time they make one of these things. To be fair, he he does like to. BC3PO, but I don't think he loves the outfit necessarily. <laughs> no, I think he prefers uh, showing up to do an animated thing or something. <laughs> 
And in fairness, I know they used in the new movies some CGI or sometimes they got a stunt man, but whatever. That's that's the story as Alan Tudyk tells it. And it is a funny story. He is really good as K2SO. He really finds some really funny like line readings and, and mannerisms. And and he's in some, you know, more dramatic roles, some more. He's in that 310 to Yuma, um, which... I should say the remake of 310 to Yuma. Right. He was in 42, which was very surprising to us in the theater because... He's the worst character in it. (laughs) Right, because we loved Firefly. We loved Wash, and we were like, oh, what a nice guy. And then I'm pretty sure, if I recall, his first line is, hey, (laughs) N-word. And you're like, oh, no. He's the extreme racist character in that movie. (laughs) And you're like, oh, no. Yeah. In this, of course, we have to point out that he's doing an impersonation of Edwin. He is. And they definitely modeled the character of King Candy, the way he, way he looks on Edwin and especially his character from Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter. Oh, yeah. And also just the way he looks in Mary Poppins. And yeah, it's very much it's funny because I was surprised to find out Alan Tudyk did that voice because I didn't know he could do such silly voices. But of course, now we know he does many silly voices. Mm -hmm. Let's see. We've got Ed O'Neill as Mr. Litwack, the uh, arcade owner. Like banana. (laughs) Uh, He does the voice of Hank in Finding Dory after this. Technically, he was... One of the main characters, like I guess, on the sitcom Married with Children that I never watched, but it was so popular in the late 80s into the 90s. I saw commercials for it all the time. He was also the main character in that movie Dutch. Do you remember watching that? I do. Yeah, he's Dutch. Yeah, he's very good in that. He is. It's a very funny movie. And then I just wanted to like, I don't know. Honorable mentions that the director, Rich Moore, does the voices of Sour Bill and Zangief. And Phil Johnston, the writer, does the voice of the Surge Protector. (laughs) I will say with like Zangief and some of the other characters, they recast a lot of the people where it's like Zangief has a voice actor in the games. You know, I like the director cameo. I especially like Sour Bill. I wish that they had paid the actual voice actors for these characters to do them in the movie. They did for Sonic, but yeah, not for. Uh, oh, I guess a lot of the others don't talk. So maybe it's just saying Keith, but, you know, it, it would have been nice. Yeah, most of the others don't really talk, but it would have been nice for them to get as many voice actors back as they could, especially for if it one liners and things. I will say a lot of the other actors in this most of whom are like very small. A lot of them are sitcom actors. Like you got Mindy Kaling as Taffeta. You got Joe Latruglio from Brooklyn Nine-Nine as Markowski. Uh-huh. I just think that a lot of that probably comes from Rich Moore's background in TV. And I think he's bringing a lot of, you know, people he probably worked with in that world on. That's all. Yep. Because there are a lot of characters with voices and the list of additional voices in this movie is extensive. But it is... It gets into basically a, a who's who among voice actors, you know. Oh, yep. I've heard them before seeing that. Yep. Jim Cummings. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you got to tell me, was he paid his price? 
the man himself. Is he in this one? You know what? I couldn't see his name in the list. It is a long list, though. So let me look at again. I will actually get the uh, computer to look for me, but I don't see Frank Welker anywhere. You'd think he'd do have done the voice of the devil dogs or something, right? I know. This is a live <laughs> investigation, people. <laughs> All right. I suppose we should get into the movie. It starts with a pixelated intro, like the castle and stuff. That's a lot of fun. How cute. And I really like this opening voiceover. You know, I complained about it a little bit. Complained is even a strong word. But entangled, we were like, this would have been more fun if it was a book rather than just a straightforward narration. Well, this isn't a book. That would be weird. It would (laughs) be weird. We find out at the end of it that it's his bad anon. You know, it's his Alcoholics Anonymous, basically, (laughs) confession. Yeah. And that adds a really interesting texture to the voiceover where he's, you know, where it is confessional and he's not ready to admit some stuff to himself yet. So, you know, he's talking about like, yeah, you know, I, I live in the dump and you know, it's 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 not so bad. It's not as bad as it sounds. But at the same time, sometimes I'm really honest with myself. Yeah. And you're watching the game. You're getting introduced to the game world. And there's and the characters. And so much of the world is being established visually. Like I was saying to you that I really appreciate that there isn't a voiceover line that's like, you know, I know we actually see this a little bit later, but it's not like. And between games, we all live together in Game Central Station, which exists in the power strip. You know, I feel like if they were doing that, you'd be like, well, that's dumb. Why do you live in a power? Does every power strip look like this on the inside? (laughs) Is all electricity and like programs alive and they live in power strips, which is kind of what the sequel maybe. I don't know. It gets weird. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's just you see like the electricity going into it and then you're inside the station and it kind of looks like power outlets and you're like, oh, okay, that's that's fun. And likewise, I think, you know, the moment that really sets up the world is that the beginning we're looking outside the game cabinet. We're seeing the fix of Felix game and Wreck-It Ralph and it's all 8-bit graphics. Right. And then you actually zoom into the cabinet, pass through it, and now we're in the 3D world. Yes. And it just immediately explains to you what's going on. Yeah, so they don't have to look 8-bit all the time. It actually works really well. Because they would look really strange for you to be having the flat characters, you know? Right. These are basically actors. Mm -hmm. They spend the whole day while the kids are playing the arcade games, doing whatever the game is programmed to do, and then they can do whatever. I think it does a very good job setting up the world. (laughs) I do like the uh, bad and on, I don't know, motto or whatever, one game at a time. <laughs> yes. Very silly. Yes. And the bad and on. I mean, again, another thing about this movie is that it's not built on references like so many movies. Now, Disney this year put out the Chip and Dale movie. You know, obviously we have like Ready Player One. We uh-huh. have all, you know, all of these others. This one, it gets the cameos out of the way at the beginning. A lot of them are like. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Yep. And they're they're not any of them important to the story. Like if you don't get the reference or the cameo, you're not going to understand the story. That's not how it works. They're just fun if you get them. And if you don't get them, oh, that's just a weird, interesting character, whatever. It's it's not like you're missing anything important to understand the story. 
I really appreciate the restraint in this scene where like Dr. Eggman and Bowser are the two biggest characters in this scene by far. Uh They're the two. I mean, they are the two primary antagonists of gaming's two biggest mascots. Neither of them talks. (laughs) You see them there, but like, you know, you don't have Eggman giving a big speech or anything. Instead, you have Zangief, right? They didn't just go, well, the big names have to do the big things. It's again, it's like if you. Well, and it's being run by one of the Pac-Man ghosts, which I guess you could say he's a main character. It's funny. No, I mean, what I'm just going to say, I I guess you could say he's, you know, everybody knows about Pac-Man, but not very many people can name which ghost it is. Right. And it's funnier for it to be Clyde the ghost because it's very funny for the Pac-Man ghost to be like a soft spoken facilitator. Yeah. And and yeah, you know, again, it feels like they actually went, okay, who would be funny? Who can we do a joke with like Zangief and the ghost (laughs) rather than just and and, zombie, you know, and and zombie who's just a generic zombie. And it's like, if you know who M. Bison is, you're like, oh, cool. M. Bison is in this scene. If you don't know who that is, you're like, that's some video game bad guy. And you're you just keep going at the end of the Badenon meeting which we find out is taking place in the Pac-Man game. We see the actual title of the movie and Ralph takes the cherries from Pac-Man, which is pretty funny. Yes, I do like that. Like this section, I feel like has the most Easter eggs as he, you know, takes the train from Pac-Man into Game Central Station. There's graffiti. There's, of course, all the characters walking around. You don't have to know who they are. There's, I think, some of the even the game titles, you know, over the outlets where they're plugged in. I like that Game Central Station is inspired by Grand Central Station. It it works really well, I think. Yeah, it's a clever idea. And 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 yeah, like the cameos are mostly not spelled out and a lot mm-hmm. of them are pretty subtle. And again, it's like you can pause and look at all of them, but you can also just watch the movie. I really like the stuff with the surge protector, I think is very funny. He's so funny. And it it shows, you know, a little more like why it sucks to be a bad guy, because Ralph gets stopped every time he even gets stopped. Yeah. (laughs) Walking from one end of the station to the other. He gets stopped both times. It's interesting that all of the video game bad guys have the same issue that everybody treats them like they are really villains in real life when it's like, come on, people, it's just my job. But Ralph doesn't really know how to express that. He is very simple. (laughs) He's from an old game. He's 8-bit. He doesn't have... It's taken him 30 years to realize he has these emotions and to be able to even slightly express them. He doesn't know how to tell people, hey, I'm not just because I'm a bad guy doesn't mean I'm a bad guy. I, we can still be friends when we're not having to do our bad guy stuff. Right. And again, I should also note, of course, the very biggest cameo in the whole movie is that we do actually get Sonic the Hedgehog here, voiced by Roger Craig Smith. Mm-hmm. But he's not even in the scene. He's there and he's like, if your game goes down, I, I forget what he's he's delivering some like he's basically a spokesperson. He, he's basically given a PSA like don't die outside your game because you can't regenerate. That's right. Don't die outside your game. It's on some like billboard. Right. That's the point. They're setting up this world's rules and laws without having it to be 
like hammered into our face. Really, you know, they're just it makes sense for there to be something like that because there's always new games plugged in all the time. People might not know. And I really again, I just appreciate the restraint where we have all these references, which are fun, but they don't take over the movie. So Ralph goes back home and he sees that the nice landers who are the people of Fix It Felix Jr. are having a party in the big apartment complex and they're celebrating the 30th anniversary, but nobody invited him, even though he is a major part of the game. They all treat him like garbage. Yeah, that really sucks. This is your co-worker. Yeah. The game can't function without him. So you you really feel for him here. And, you know, he goes up and he's talking about, like, I've never had cake. And it's like, oh, man, that that sucks. Yeah. The awkward conversation between Felix and Ralph. So awkward. <laughs> Although, again, how much do video game characters need to eat? Don't worry about it. Do they need to sleep? No. I mean, I like the awkward interaction between him and Felix. Mm-hmm. Who we see is... A really nice guy. I mean, he hasn't been respecting Ralph either, but. But he doesn't hate Ralph. He doesn't fear Ralph exactly. I mean, he might be a little nervous around him because he's not really sure how to act, but he's not like, eh, Ralph, go away. You know, with him, it's more naivete. He doesn't realize he's doing something wrong. Big Gene is hateful. <laughs> he's a jerk. He's a jerk. And this actually kind of shows you like why Felix might be a little nervous. As soon as Ralph walks in, not only does he smash the penthouse a bit, but he kills Felix (laughs) stone dead. And then he has to regenerate with a life, which is really funny. It is funny. But basically, Ralph is just so big and awkward. He is very good at wrecking things. That's what he does. When he splatters the cake, it's 8-bit, which yes. is a, one of the many, many infinite visual details in this that I appreciate is the cake splatters into squares. Yes, everything in this is squares. Later, when he's punching the bricks to try to make like a bed for himself, the, the clouds of dust are squares, too. <laughs> yep, I love that. Everything, all the little details. It's so great. So here, though, we get the basic impetus for Ralph is he's having the argument with Gene and Ralph says how he could win a medal if he wanted to. And Gene's like, fine, if you win a medal, we'll let you live in the penthouse instead of in the dump. And so Ralph is like, "Okay, I will. So then he's going to leave and see how he can get a medal. He goes to Tappers, which is again, that's a reference I appreciate because that's A more obscure one, to be sure. Tappers, definitely not as many people know about that as like Pac-Man. But also it's like there is not to, you know, overstate it or read too much into it, do the annoying thing where it's like, did you know this kid's movie is super dark? But there is a little (laughs) bit like he's going to what's clearly a metaphor for Alcoholics Anonymous. He's spending time at Tappers. There's a line later Felix has about like he's probably passed out of the washroom at Tappers again. Like. I'm not saying this movie is about alcoholism, but it is like he's very lonely and the indicators of his loneliness are things that I think are familiar to, you know, any working adult in the United States. Right. If you feel very lonely, what do you do? You go drink alone and that's bad. And, you know, like, honestly, I connected with this movie more seeing it as an like as a full adult, as someone who's actually (laughs) in the workforce. 
than I ever did before. You just you connect differently to those feelings of like you've been doing the same thing for 30 years and you just go to the bar every night and you're like, is this all there is to life? And the answer is no, there's other people. That's what makes it work is other people and the time you can spend with people outside of work. And hopefully your coworkers aren't completely horrible to you. That would be nice. <laughs> Better be working nice. conditions. Yay. And taking care of the homeless. All good things that Ralph learns to do. I mean, even from the setup for his game, you kind of feel sorry for him because in the setup for his game, he's living peacefully in the woods in a stump and they come and bulldoze his land and move his stump to the dump and build an apartment building there. And he's not allowed. So that's true. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. The setup of his game is basically gentrification. <laughs> so, of course, he meets this guy from this new game called Heroes Duty, who is going on about how they've only been plugged in a week and it's so stressful and horrible with the bugs and ah bugs and ends up knocking himself out by running into a wall or something. And so Ralph takes his armor because he's, he finds out you can win a medal in that game. So Ralph disguises himself as Markowski. Right. To go and sneak into Hero's Duty. And they they were very inspired by like Halo and, and obviously Hero's Duty. Call of Duty was the biggest game in the world at the time. Right. But I like that it doesn't just feel like those games. It feels like the shooting games that were actually at the arcade that were the big platforms with the gun and everything. Yeah. But then pretty much sucked. You were just going in a straight line. They were impossible to ever even get close to beating. (laughs) This arcade really feels like an arcade. I feel like that's an underrated thing about this. All the games feel like real games. And the arcade feels like a real arcade. And it just you can tell this movie was directed by someone who understands video games. Yep. Without being this like totally uncritical again, just reference all the stuff. Nostalgia trip again. Ready Player One nonsense. Right. But it's someone who gets it. And here we do get a little bit of more of the world in Litwax Arcade here. With the girl who is going to play the Hero's Duty game. Quarter alert, quarter alert. (laughs) Right. I really like the first person shooter, how they visualize that in the world as this. (laughs) The little robot. Yeah, little robot with a zoom camera on top. And Calhoun, Sergeant Jane Lynch, has to perform to the first person shooter. Yeah. Again, like they just really nailed. It's very clever. They thought it through and they made it work. And this is like. Again, it feels arcadey. It doesn't feel like Halo or something, which, uh, you know, a, a, a console or PC first person shooter where you can like move around. This is one of those games where you're like, there's a bunch of stuff happening around you, but you are just wheeling forward in a straight line uh-huh. and an enemy comes into view and it's basically whack-a-mole with extra steps. Like, yeah, yeah. You got to get up to the tower. And you got to defeat all these cybugs. Ralph, he's freaking out. We have we were talking about there's a line here where he's like, when did video games become so violent and scary? And you saw that in the trailers and you were like, and I the general you went. We saw that in the trailers and that's where you go like, ugh, like, is that what this movie's going to be? Like, is it going to be a bunch of out of touch people making a movie about video games? It's not in context. It works because it's someone from a 30 year old video game about like 
repairing apartments yes. <laughs> thrown into modern gaming. I mean, he does violence to the apartment. He breaks the windows and breaks the bricks and like Ralph's like an old guy. He is. <laughs> he is. He's he's an old guy who's, you know, experiencing new things for the first time. And he's like, ah, I can't handle it. Exactly. And of course, he wrecks the game for the player because he can't handle it. <laughs> he won't follow the program and stay in line and just, you know, let the first person shooter do her stuff. Right. And I forget talking about like how this movie builds the world without spelling out that it's building the world. That's one of the best things about how this movie is written. Yeah, it's so good. The world building is amazing. Everything in this movie pays off. A lot of it, not for a long time. And when you're watching it the first time, you don't realize they're setting up something that's going to pay off. For example, the girl has an interaction before she settles on Hero's Duty at the Sugar Rush arcade machine where they not only establish Sugar Rush exists, but there's the whole thing about we're playing all of today's new racers. Yeah. And new racers every day. Right. And they could never show Sugar Rush again. And you wouldn't feel like that scene was out of place because it it's a nice little character moment for her where it's like, oh, yeah, like the guys are treating her badly. She's a girl yeah. playing video games. The guys at the arcade are jerks. Like, yeah, that's unfortunately how it goes. It was even worse in 2012. Still could be better now. But of course, As we then go to Sugar Rush, we understand what this game is and, you know, the idea of the racers rotating, which is extremely important to Vanellope. Yeah. And they also then we have the thing with uh, once the game is over for the girl, they have a beacon to stop the cybugs, which are the villains, I guess you could say, in Heroes Duty because they're not thinking characters. They are like a virus almost, and there is a way to destroy them because... Right, they don't know they're in a game. They don't know they're in a game, the bugs. They're not really sentient, conscious, whatever. That's one of those things. There's a lot of things in this plot where if you think about it too hard, you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, why would that be in a video game? That seems incredibly dangerous, but... You just go with it. It all kind of makes emotional sense and it makes visual sense. She doesn't say for a while the beam is the only thing that can kill these bugs. You just see a big beam. You see all the bugs, you know, going moth mode, flying into it, getting fried. You're like, okay, all the bugs are dead. Like, yeah. And then we'll find out later how important that is. But you're just in the moment you're like, okay, sure. Yeah, that that seems right. You aren't thinking about any potential plot holes or anything while you're watching it. True. And you don't even really worry about them too much afterwards. You might notice them or think about them, but you're not going to be like, that was really terrible. Because you're there with the characters and you're there with the central metaphor. So it doesn't matter the kind of plot machinations they have to do around it. So then the girl goes to play Wreck-It Ralph, but of course there's no Ralph. So she's uh, trying to play and it's not working. And, you know, Felix is like, Ralph, Ralph, out of the corner of his mouth. Yes, and then just he- to like briefly talk about the, again, the world building. You know, you might be wondering at this point, okay, so do they, to what extent do they have to do what the player's forcing them to do? And to what extent are they like actors? This scene, without making a big deal about that, being what it's doing, answers all those questions. Yep. And so, yeah, he has the moment where he's 
walking like a video game character going, Ralph, 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 until he gets out of the field of view and then he starts moving like a person. Yes. And also when she actually controls him and is making him, you know, jump around and do stuff. And then when he takes control and like goes off the screen, you see the joystick and all moving on its own. (laughs) Right. And so you're like, okay, well, if all these creatures are sentient, they have free will, they can do whatever they want. Then why would they choose to be a game like this? And the answer arrives immediately because if the game doesn't work as expected, out of order. Yep. The out of order sign goes up. And if it's, you know, still broken, they're going to get unplugged. And that means they either die in the game or they, you know, escape to Game Central Station where they live homeless. Like we see Qbert. Like what happens if you don't have a job? Again, the metaphor. And as you say, we've seen Qbert homeless and it's kind of a sad moment. How can we remind the audience of those stakes? What if Qbert shows up right now? Yep, because Qbert comes to tell them how he saw Ralph go into hero's duty. The script is so insanely good and tight and like it's mechanically perfect. It's perfect in structure, but it doesn't feel like that. You're not spending the whole time, you know, you're there emotionally. It's it's really Mm -hmm. good. And Felix talking cuberties is really, really funny. And we find out Ralph's gone turbo, which is an idea we still don't really understand, but we've heard a couple times. Yeah, they're not going to explain that for a while. I do like when Felix arrives in Hero's Duty and Calhoun, you know, is trying to shoot him because she thinks he sounds like a bug with his hopping sound. (laughs) And he sees her and he's like, your face, such high definition. (laughs) He's he's won over immediately. Yep, he's smitten. And this is where Ralph escapes. He activates an escape pod, I should say. It's him and a cybug. And the metal, and they all fly to Sugar Rush. Yep, so he does manage to get the metal from the top of the tower, and the escape pod like bangs around all inside Hero's Duty, and then in this game central station, and then flies into Sugar Rush and crashes. And again, the restraint that the entire rest of the movie, other than the, you know, denouement, takes place in Sugar Rush. I really, really appreciate that we're not constantly like jumping around from game to game. It it just works so much better. Basically, at around the 30 minute mark here with the as after we've met Vanellope, like all the pieces are in place and we understand everything and we've met all the characters and we kind of know where everything's going and now we can enjoy the journey. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, 30 minutes, it's a little longer than a lot of these movies. It's something we've complained about in the past, like a lot of the Bronze Era movies and even more so, I think, the experimental era movies we'd complain about, like, you know, Home on the Range takes like 50 minutes to establish the movie. First of all, this isn't as long But second of all, you're entertained throughout. You're laughing. There's that cool, multiple cool action sequences. I mean, yeah, you've been having such a great time. And now, fortunately, the movie kind of settles down and and we got a movie going. So Ralph is climbing a tree to get his medal out of the tree and he meets Vanellope and she's snarky from the first. 
And when she sees the medal, she calls it a gold coin and they fight over it. They both want it for different reasons, though technically a similar reason. It's going to change their lives. <laughs> this is where we find out, though, as uh, Felix and Calhoun are going into Sugar Rush because she they both saw, you know, he saw Ralph in the escape pod. She saw the cybug and she's like, we have to stop the cybug. Those things don't know they're in a video game. And, you know, she's very intense. And we find out about she has the most tragic backstory ever created, which is, I think, my one of my favorite things about this movie. It's so hard to pick a favorite scene, but I really love this where they tell her most tragic backstory of the day of her wedding. The one day she didn't do a perimeter check <laughs> and her husband gets eaten by a cybug just as they're getting married. <laughs> this and the repetition of this later. Yes. Probably the funniest joke in the whole movie, but... I have to slightly correct you because the exact line that's so good and that I distinctly remember the first time I watched this being one of the moments where I was like, OK, this movie is really like excellent. I feel like I'm in really, really good hands with this is she's programmed with the most tragic backstory ever. <laughs> just just perfect. So just yep. so much in that uh, we have the race here. Race to decide the next day's racers. And we meet King Candy. Right. Who I totally didn't think was going to be a villain for a while. He just seems oh, yeah. like, oh, he's some goofy guy running around. He's like very mildly antagonistic to them. But you don't really get that he's going to be a villain uh -huh. for a while. Again, this movie, it's got a lot of surprises. But when you are surprised by it, you're like, oh, wow, that's a good, satisfying reveal. Not, mm -hmm. oh, what? What? Where'd that come from? Yeah, there are hints and things throughout, but they go by so fast, you're never going to catch them. Right. Like King Candy being the number one racer, which we find out later is because he's probably rigging the game somewhat. I mean, he has uh, total control, so why wouldn't he? But apparently even early on, if you're looking at the Sugar Rush game cabinet, you can see Vanellope very briefly. Yes, you can. But you're just you're not going to think that way. You're not going to look at that. There's other stuff going on. This is where we find that what Vanellope wants to do is enter the race. And she uses the medal as a gold coin to enter the race. So that because all she wants to do is be a racer and they all call her the glitch and she can't race. Glitches can't race. She has a car that's clearly not racing ready. No, it's a pedal car. <laughs> but Vanellope's so cute and everyone's being mean to her. I know. The upshot of the scene is Ralph shows up, wrecks everything and has an audience with King Candy. Yep. We have the Oreo. Oreo song that's making fun of the Wizard of Oz, which I, I love that yep. scene, too. It's hilarious. It's a good joke. And King Candy explains that basically you're going to have to actually win the race in order to get the medal back. Yep. It's part of the code. Right. But also, as you say, there's a lot of funny stuff with King Candy. Salmon. It's definitely salmon. <laughs> you know, it's a really cute scene. And again, we hear Ralph, you're not going turbo, are you? Yep. But still no explanation. We then go back to Vanellope, who's getting bullied. The bullies smash her car. All the other racers, the leader being Taffeta, 
her, you know, second in command being Rancis Flutterbutter, I think. And of course, in third place, everyone's favorite, <laughs> America's number one, or at least mine, Candlehead. So called because now let me let me hit you with this, Mom. The reason she's called Candlehead, I don't know if you noticed, it's a subtle reference. She got a candle on her head. She does indeed. And it's lit all the time. <laughs> but I have to say, so when they're breaking this, again, using some of these video game concepts as metaphors without being too on the nose. So they're making fun of her glitch, right? They're going, oh, I got g- glitch. Yeah. They are essentially mocking her disability. And that's what it looks like. You know, the way that they mock the glitch is by like, faking having a seizure and having a stammer, right? It's like, right. you're like, yes, yes, this is bullying. This feels like real life and it's horrible and you're horrible. And Ralph sympathizes, of course. <laughs> once she gets thrown in the mud, which is also the thing that happens to him, he can't take it no more. Yep. And so he sympathizes. He scares the other kids off and they make a deal. They're to, they're basically going to be friends for now. And he is going to help Vanellope win the race so that he can get his medal back. (laughs) And here's where we have a scene with Felix and Calhoun, where we finally get the explanation of going turbo. Because as we've established, their game console has only been here for a week. Yeah. So they don't know because this is a term specific to this arcade. Yes. So good. Where there's basically there was a character named Turbo from a game called Turbo Time, who was a racer from a really old style racing game. New racing game goes in. Everybody's playing it. He's jealous. He goes and tries to sneak into that other game. So going turbo means leaving your game and invading someone else's game to take it over to it be involved in it but what ended it ended up doing was getting both games ruined and unplugged so that's going turbo going turbo is being so selfish that you ruin not only your game but somebody else's game too and this is also like they have a whole little adventure where they fall into the nest quicksand. <laughs> they have to escape with the help of the laffy taffy it's very funny and also calhoun is starting to get the hots for Felix in a very yep. Calhouny way. Yes. Oh, and we've already, I think, had him talking about how she gives him the honey glue. That's actually next. That's actually their next scene together. But I mean, obviously, he had the high definition comment, and it's just been obvious throughout that he's he's got the hots. She gives him the honey glue, something fierce. Yep. It, it has to be later because it's the whole point is that's not blunt force trauma, ma'am. Uh, you're <laughs> which right. Which is a reference to him getting smashed in the face in his scene, which also establishes that his magic hammer can fix ev- anything, which is good. It's just it works. I don't think this is my favorite scene, but it's one of them, which is I just love so much Vanellope and Ralph making the car. It is a good scene where they have the silly mini game to make a cart and then sign it at the end. It's hilarious. They do every part of the game wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Ralph then breaks everything, of course, because that is how Ralph do. But they work together to do it wrong. And at the end, Vanellope loves it. (laughs) And we have a, a fun little scene where they're, you know, they're basically in a car chase with the cops. 
and they have to take the shortcut into the Cola Hot Springs. Yep, Diet Cola Mountain. Which this is the trashy place where Vanellope lives. And this is finally, we are not just allied in terms of we both have a goal that we need to accomplish, but we are really and truly friends. And Ralph buys into her dream and understands her dream, and he's going to help her achieve it. With another scene I love. I just love them being friends, I guess. Yeah, the, yeah. Another scene I love is the shut up and drive yeah. training scene. Learning montage. It's a great song. It's a, it's a Rihanna song in a Disney movie. And it's a hilarious scene. Ralph gets hurt a lot. This is where they also establish glitches can't leave their game. So that's important for later. Yeah, and uh, the... What Diet Coke and Mentos do, and, and that will also be important. And she fails to make the jump at the end, which will be paid off because when she saves Ralph, it's her succeeding in making that same jump. So here's where we see that King Candy actually manages to go into the code for Sugar Rush. And here's where you start to wonder if he's a little bit more than he seems. I don't think I even the first time we saw it that I was suspecting he was the villain exactly, but mainly because you don't really know what's going on. You can't figure it out until at first, the first time you see it. Oh, for but sure. You do see the Vanellope's code looks disconnected and off to the side, but not like it's sparking. It could just be. Yeah, she's not connected because she's a glitch. Yeah, I think when we first watched this, that's how I read that. I know I at least during his next explanation, which is very plausible. I think I was like, this does make sense. Is it just this or I, I think I still had the question, like, is he more nefarious, especially because mm -hmm. he's, you know, in the scene with the code, that's a lot more. Like, I think he's evil laughing a little bit, you know? Yeah. So but yes, it's it. It really is a, a good reveal. You don't expect this character to necessarily be evil. You certainly don't expect him to be turbo spoilers. Right. Spoilers. And like I said, he now gives. Well, I think actually before he talks to Ralph, that is the next Calhoun. Yeah, and that's Felix where we scene. have the honey glow. The one dynamite gal. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have her whole memories of um, her her dead fiance calling her a dynamite gal. She, <laughs> so she dumps Felix and drives off. Oh, it's so funny. He's saying it at their wedding. It seems to be the only thing he's ever said to her. It is just a pre-programmed backstory. <laughs> you don't have to put a lot of detail into it. But apparently they put all the horrible emotions into it. So mean. <laughs> Is probably guys programming this game. <laughs> now we have the explanation of why Vanellope cannot be allowed to race, which makes perfect sense with everything you've heard so far. Ralph has no reason to doubt this, and Candy really sells it. He does, and he gives Ralph his medal back. And then we find out Vanellope made him a medal just to twist that knife, as we have one of the saddest scenes oh. in a Disney movie. This literally watching it now and I've I've surely seen this movie a dozen times at least like I still got chills at this scene where he, you know, hangs her up and breaks a car. Yeah. And Silverman's performance is so good when she's like, Ralph, Ralph, no, no. Like it is brutal. And it's 
this is when you really realize like the magic trick of this movie working so well, because this is such a powerful emotional scene that is ridiculous. Like the car is ridiculous. The candy car is being smashed by the big Donkey Kong parody. Yeah. While this ridiculous little Sarah Silverman jokey joke girl is what like, you know, if you somehow watched this scene in isolation or had it described to you without knowing anything about the movie, it sounds ridiculous. But it's they really have conveyed to you why this is so important. And this is such a betrayal. How can you not feel for it? You do. You feel it. It it hurts. And Ralph feels it, too. He's not happy about it, but he's doing it to keep Vanellope safe, he thinks. Right. I mean, the moment that always gets to me the most in this scene is when Ralph hesitates before. Like, he lifts up his fists and then he has a clear moment of hesitation and just feeling horrible and then he does it anyway because he literally thinks he's saving her life and she just won't listen to him and he's like i never should have come here i never should have tried to be a hero or get a medal the only thing i can do is wreck stuff break stuff yep that's all i'm good for and so sure enough he goes back to his game and we have another kind of brutal line <laughs> where gene who's very much like mollified. He's like, yeah, you sure showed us. And now everything's destroyed. Like you kind of feel for Gene, surprisingly, since he was such a bully. And he's like, but, you know, here's the keys. And Ralph just goes, I didn't want to be alone in the garbage. And he goes, well, now you can be alone in the penthouse. Right. Because the problem wasn't really the dump. It was the alone. It's true. But everybody's abandoning the game because they're afraid it's going to be unplugged. So then Ralph is, you know, sad and on the balcony and he looks out through the glass of the game console and he sees the Sugar Rush game console and he sees the image of Vanellope on the side of the game console. And he knows, wait a minute, something is not right. This is another scene that cracks me up so much is his interrogation of Sour Bill. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Please don't put me back in your filthy mouth. Richmore's really funny as as the Sour Bill. He is. And Sour Bill tells as much as he can, which is that all their memories are locked up and that if Vanellope completes the race, the game will reset to whatever it was before. Right, which is one of those things where it's like, why is that true? I mean, that's a complete like that's just a plot contrivance. But sure, fine, whatever. We need some way out of this. Why not? Right. Honestly, if there's any movie that can get away with having extremely video gamey logic, it's a movie about video games. And you were already bought into the idea of them winning the race and how much this means to Vanellope. So you want it right. to happen right. anyway. And Felix and Vanellope are, of course, in the fungin. Another funny <laughs> callback. The fun dungeon. And uh, you, I gotta say, Turbo's really committed to this King Candy character, which he must have been playing for a while, <laughs> that he completely invented. King Candy not supposed to be in the original game at all. Right. As confirmed even further by the sequel, it's not like there's another King Candy. He, I just, it's very funny. Now we have everything going on at once. <laughs> yes. Felix and Ralph patch things up because now Felix understands what Ralph has been going through. Yes. The tender moment. 
and Ralph and Vanellope patch things up. And now all three of them have to take the repaired racer to the racetrack. And I think I'm going to say this race is my favorite scene. This one was really hard because I love like I could say Sour Bill's my favorite scene. I could say Dynamite Gal or or the tragic backstory is my favorite scene. I could say like the opening Badanon is is my favorite scene. I feel like I could literally pick almost every scene in this, but I think it's true. You know, even the the scene I think of the most is definitely the heartbreaking smashing the car scene. That's like what really stuck mm-hmm. with me. But I think it's this race because I do. You know, again, this movie has set up so many threads that for so much of the movie seem disconnected or seem like, how is this going to pull together? And here in this race, which is an incredible action scene in this gorgeous world, it pulls it all together where we have Vanellope wanting to prove she's a real racer. And we have Ralph just trying to fix everything we messed up. And we have... Like this cybug stuff is in the best possible way, kind of extreme for a Disney movie, like the way that they, it is. you know, take on the appearances of what they eat, what they eat, <laughs> like the xenomorphs, literally from Alien 3 onwards, where they can adapt like that. And and we also have King Candy, you know, gets touched by Vanel Bean, starts glitching out. And now he's like turbo and candy and glitching between the two. It's this incredible, scary visual and, you know, all the stuff that Vanellope does. And she finally gets to the end of the race and, you know, she can't cross the finish line because there is no finish line. Right. Because the cybugs are taking over everything. This is where this movie just starts paying off beautifully. And it's thrilling. It's great. And of course, hey, what video game would be complete without a big boss? This is, I genuinely think, one of the scariest things in a Disney movie. I think if I had seen, I don't think you would have let me see this as a kid. The King Candy (laughs) Monster. Yep. The King Candy Cybug Turbo Virus is like straight up body horror nightmare stuff. And I love it so much for going there. (laughs) And and I mean, like, even we're talking about death in this scene, like Vanellope is stranded here and going to die. And I mean, when the big boss monster King Candy gets Ralph, you know, he's like, let's watch her die together, shall we? And he's still in the Edwin voice. Yes. Uh, this He's a terrific villain. I mean, that's what we're dancing around is this is the last cackling maniac in the Disney <laughs> canon to date. We've had, is it just one? We've had at least one other character that you would count as a villain, which is Hans in Frozen, who's not like redeemed, who's just a villain all the way through. Yeah. I think. That, oh, and Zootopia has a villain. I was going to say there's a villain in Big Hero 6 as well. So that's of. true. That's true. But they're not as fun. They're not this level of cackling maniac. Right. Which which this truly is. This is above and beyond evil. And it's so good. It mm-hmm. gives something gives our heroes something to, to fight against. Right. So Ralph, though, what he's he manages to achieve his plan, which is to drop all the Mentos into the steaming diet cola. And he sacrifices himself. Oh, yeah. Again, he's like, all I can do is 
that no one else can do is I can break this thing. Yep. That is like unbreakable. And as he's going down, when he says the bad guy affirmation, it's another moment where it's like, this is silly. This is dumb. But mom is miming crying because you feel the emotion of it. Goosebumps. I'm having goosebumps now because I'm thinking about it. There's no one I'd rather be than me, because right now what you need is someone who is supernaturally good at breaking something. Yep. And so he manages to make a beacon, which destroys all of the cybugs, the candy cybugs. And King Candy going into it where his cybug form, his King Candy cybug form, basically the part of him that he coded into the game is being drawn into the beam. But it occasionally flashes to Turbo, who's not from this game, who is not wanting to go into the beam. And it's again, it's a great performance by Tudyk where he's playing both of these simultaneously. But it's like it's an affecting death. <laughs> again, it's it's kind of extreme, which I appreciate. And it's like if Turbo hadn't coded himself into the game and had, you know, unfortunately been homeless or whatever would have happened to him or even just the game's still there, but it gets played less, which I seems like that was the stakes. Yeah. He just wasn't the most popular game anymore. He would not now have to be fully aware of what was going on as his mutated form is vaporized. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is good stuff. So Felix fixes the finish line and everything. And Vanellope rides across it in her cart. And the game resets. Everybody's memories gets unlocked. She is transformed into a princess. And she is the actual ruler of Sugar Rush. And that King Candy took over. And everyone who is ever mean to me shall be executed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one thing I forgot to mention about uh, America's number one sweetheart, Candlehead. (laughs) Earlier in the race, she gets knocked into some frosting. Uh, All basically the bullies get knocked into frosting and Rancis immediately starts crying. Yep. But she goes, my candle (laughs) and her candle's gone out. Yes. I I don't know why, but just Candlehead, she has a candle <laughs> on her head, is so funny to me. <laughs> and I think she starts crying here again or something. Or Taffeta's yes. crying. Taffeta's crying for sure. And like all of her makeup is running. Yeah. It's very silly. Of course, Vanellope does not kill them all. And she keeps her glitching ability. Don't think about how she does that. <laughs> Not, yeah, well, neither Vanellope nor Ralph has to change who they are in their game world. Their happiness yeah. doesn't come from getting a better job like they think it will. It comes from them making a friend, being happy with who they are. And again, more, as you say, more importantly, making friends. Uh, being happy outside of work and not being relentlessly bullied every day. Yeah, that's always that would be good. Nice. Yeah, yep, yep. Now we have kind of a voiceover as we're having, you know, the wrap up. Yep, it's another bad anon update. Yeah, Felix and Calhoun get married, which is a great payoff to the whole backstory thing where they've got all the soldiers are aiming at the window to make sure there's no cybug coming in to eat Felix. Yes. The entire audience of the wedding is they're ready. (laughs) Yes, it's just an armed soldiers. Well, of course. I also it's just 
it's such a tiny detail, totally meaningless gesture, but just something I appreciate is Vanellope being back in her princess dress for the wedding and also yeah. kind of tugging at it like it's uncomfortable. I don't know why, but that is just one of those moments that makes this world feel real. And like they really thought about it, even to, mm-hmm. to bringing that dress back and showing her uncomfortable in it. Like it's just a nice teeny tiny detail that shows how much thought went into this movie. Yep. And of course, Vanellope is very popular as the racers. The players very much like that she can use her glitching power to teleport and win the game. Yes, that's that's all well and good. We are housing the homeless game characters and they get to participate in a bonus level. Yeah. Somehow, you know, nobody's like, hey, this is the only copy of Sugar Rush in existence where Vanellope looks like this and the only copy of Fix a Felix in existence. There's this bonus level. But again, don't worry about it. It's nice. And uh, the best part of his day is when he gets thrown off the roof because he gets lifted high enough to see Vanellope in her game. And the final line of the movie is, if that little kid likes me, how bad can I be? Yep. Just excellent. It's such a good movie. You know, it's not excellent. <laughs> Sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides and reboots. Tell me about the rides. There really aren't rides, but they do have some meet and greets. Oh, how are those costumes looking? So originally they looked like this. Um, but then apparently they redesigned them after Ralph breaks the Internet to look a little bit different. They're not really great like Vanellope especially I feel like doesn't quite look right originally but they redesigned them and I don't know if this picture is just a better angle or if they just managed to make them look a lot better but they look a lot better later and after the 2018 Ralph Breaks the Internet update. I think it's better I, I think it's a little bit of both these later costumes have more shoulder uh, they have more definition in the face, but I think they both basically look fine. They they could be much worse. Oh, they could definitely be much worse. They mainly get to see Ralph and Vanellope. I don't think they ever made any meet and greet characters for anyone else like Felix or Calhoun, which would be funny. But of course, Vanellope is not nearly as tiny as she would be. I was your brother saw me looking at these and was like, that doesn't make sense. She's almost as tall as he is. And I'm like, I know, but you got to put an actual person <laughs> in the costume. Right. I, she's like the size of his fist. In, uh, <laughs> yeah. Both of them are the wrong size. It's fine. It's fine. It's OK. You got to make some adjustments. Would be fun if they had Felix and Calhoun. But yeah, they they you occasionally see stuff with them like, you know, in the world of color show where they project images from the movies, you know, stuff like that. Right. You'll see stuff of the other characters from Wreck-It Ralph there. And that's pretty much it in the parks. And I know Ralph shows up in like that ridiculous mobile game, Disney Heroes Battle Mode. Mm -hmm. It's all very silly, but mostly there was a sequel. Indeed. Sequel called Ralph Breaks the Internet, released in 2018, which is in the Disney animated canon, but... We are not covering it because our show's going to end with Moana. So we get to cover it here in this episode. This was, I remember, kind of a big deal because there weren't sequels in the animated canon very much up to this point. Obviously, there was Rescuers Down Under and then, 
you and I would argue Winnie the Pooh is one, but you right. know, it's it's not strictly speak. Also, some people count three caballeros, but you know, in terms of strict sequels, there had only been rescuers. Right. They had never done it like this. And I remember that was a big part of like the run up to this movie was them being like, no, we really felt like we had a great story. We're not just doing a sequel for sequel's sake. Now it's pretty obvious, you know, both Disney and Pixar are doing sequels for sequel's sake. Oh, yeah. I mean, we now live in the era of light year. <laughs> There's no we're fully mask off as far as, oh, yes, we will milk every corner of this universe for profit. Yes, it's true. I'll tell you, I do believe that the filmmakers actually cared about Ralph Breaks the Internet but I think they made several bad decisions. And uh, the thing you have got to understand about this, I think. So right after the movie, immediately they started throwing out ideas for a sequel. I think it's a movie that kind of lends itself well to the idea of spinoffery and sequels because, you know, there's so many other games we could visit. There's so much more we could do. And it's just really well liked. It would be fun. But Rich Moore and Phil Johnston really wanted to take this movie and the story somewhere else. I'll tell you personally, I don't know that you could do a good Wreck-It Ralph sequel. I could see a TV show being fun. That's Ralph and Vanellope hanging out in the arcade. I think something like that that's much more low stakes would be enjoyable. I don't know that you could do a full feature film sequel, but they didn't just want to do another story in the arcade. They were talking about like it should have something to do with console gaming or online gaming. We really want to get out of the arcade in some form. Meanwhile, Disney had also been playing with this idea of a movie about going into the Internet because... I mean, that's just what Disney's been doing. What if X had feelings, I think, is just <laughs> what's on their whiteboard, right? Yeah. So what if we did a movie set inside the Internet, which is I don't know if it's a good idea. But then they were like, hey, that's what the Ralph sequel should be. Apparently, they were developing the Internet story and went, hey, you know, it would be fun if Ralph and Vanellope were actually the main characters of this going to the Internet. Yeah. And that, of course, leads to Ralph Breaks the Internet because Breaks the Internet was very briefly a thing people were saying. <laughs> we watched this in theaters and we yep. came out feeling a little disappointed. We both really wanted to like it. Yeah. High expectations. Yes. And we walked out and we both felt like it was kind of hit and miss. I remember feeling at the time like I'll probably never rewatch this because I think if I do right now, I feel like it's hit and miss. And I feel like if I rewatch it, I'll really hate it. Well, I rewatched it today, folks, and I'd like to award myself the Nobel Prize in being correct <laughs> because this movie sucks. I know I've already been complaining about it. You know, the shortcomings of this movie, I think, highlight the excellence of the original film. It's true. But now we can just talk about this movie and how it sucks. And I understand you also rewatched it for the pod. I did. I was I, I asked the uh, the guys, your dad and your brother, I was like, I really want to rewatch it because this is our chance to talk about it. Do you guys want to watch it with me or do you want me to watch it by myself? And they're like, I guess we'll watch it with you. <laughs> Though your brother was actually like, I've only ever seen it once. I, you know, it. It might not be that bad, but it kind of is. Yeah, again, I definitely liked it way less on rewatch. I mean, here's the thing. It's got some great bits. I agree. But the overall plot and story of the movie 
is bad because what it's mainly doing is messing with the plot of the original movie. Like it's like completely 180ing, turning around, making everything bad that you want to still be good. Making Ralph the villain, making him a bad friend and a bad guy when the whole point is you can be have the job of a bad guy without being a bad guy of the first movie. They just take that and throw it in the garbage. The main emotional thrust of this movie, the second movie, Breaks the Internet, is Ralph is extremely clingy, which makes some sense, right? Because he's he's literally never had a friend before. Right. So, of course, he's like, I never want to be away from you even for a second. That I don't have a problem with as an idea. That makes sense as a next step for these characters. What I don't like is that the movie is about how he needs to just get over it and what I would like is if this movie was about him making more friends and new friends. Yeah, well, especially because at the end of the first movie, he's Felix's best man in his wedding. So you feel like they've become friends. So he has more friends than just Vanellope. Well, that's another colossal problem is that. Felix and Calhoun are barely in this. They even give them a super fun setup, which is them adopting the other Sugar Rush racers. Right. And then you see them again at the end. But uh, like that would be much like in this first movie. That would be a super fun thing to check in with throughout because Calhoun and Felix are probably the funniest part of the first movie, even more so than our main duo It's such a good pairing. And I got to say, I love that in this, their relationship has no friction, even though (laughs) they are the two most opposite people ever. They're so great. So, again, I don't mind it being like Ralph's a little too clingy to Vanellope, but the lesson should be like, you need to make more friends and you can still be friends with Vanellope. Instead, as you say, he becomes the villain. Yeah, he becomes evil. I mean, the movie starts with him going turbo and getting Sugar Rush ruined. Right. Which is very frustrating. And then from then on, he's just trying to crush Penelope's dreams and be horrible. And the last shot of the movie is him sitting alone. So, again, it's the first movie was all about just because you're a bad guy doesn't mean you're a bad guy. You just need to make some friends. This movie's about why are you being too clingy to your friends? You're a bad guy. You really are. Knock it off. That's. So miscalculated. Yeah. And and also, I'm bothered by Vanellope getting bored with her life after only six years. It took 30 years for Ralph to be like, I can't take this anymore, right? My life just isn't working out for me. I need to do something else. After six years of being able to finally leave her game and explore other games and to actually be able to race in her game and fulfill her programming, she's bored of her entire life. And it's like, that's a bit quick. (laughs) Right. And also this whole first movie is about don't go turbo. You can't go turbo. Going turbo is selfish. Oh, yeah. Vanellope in this movie goes turbo so you know to briefly exactly goes turbo it's exactly what it is we're talking about the plot maybe not everyone's seen it to briefly run through what's going on in this movie ralph and vanelpe are best friends but ralph is super clingy well and they do the same thing all the time ralph again basically breaks sugar rush trying to help vanelpe with something like and the console literally gets broken 
So the only place they can get a new piece for it is on eBay. So they go into the arcade's newly installed Wi-Fi router, go to the Internet, try to purchase it from eBay. Adventures unfold from there. And I have to say, we talked about how this one, like, it takes a little while to establish itself. This second movie takes so much longer. It's literally 45 minutes, slightly over, depending on how you want to count it, before we get to the idea of Ralph is going to raise the money for the steering wheel by making internet videos, which I would say is kind of the main, like, action of the movie, such as it is. Yeah, so Ralph, essentially, he starts making videos to raise the money. Meanwhile, Vanellope is falling in love with this online game called Slaughter Race. She wants to move there. Ralph doesn't want her to leave. A computer virus gets involved and a virus infected Ralph nearly destroys the Internet until he lets go of his insecurities. Get it? Because viruses exploit insecurities. Do you get it? Do you get Uh it? uh uh And that's it. And then she goes turbo. She leaves her game for the Internet game slaughter race. And he's just hanging out in Grand Central Game Central Station uh, alone and content. Well, you know, they had their they had their hologram conversation that they apparently have instead of sitting there together. Talking to your friends over Zoom is super satisfying. Right. And, you know, apparently he is getting involved in other things like a book club and stuff. So maybe he's making other friends. But again, it's like it is completely unsatisfactory. That's absolutely correct. I get what the movie's doing, but it doesn't pay it off like this first yeah. one does. Meanwhile, everything else happening in the movie, I tend to find very annoying. Well, I don't find everything annoying. The way the Slaughter Race characters, Shank and all of them, talk to each other when they're not in actual uh, player mode is hilarious. Yep, that's I love how they're all so affirming of each other and having these, you know, deep conversations about everything when they're basically just a crew of... Uh, like horrible criminals in the game. And I'm not saying that there's nothing in this movie I enjoy. I like the music number. That's a cute idea. But like, again, the pacing of it's very annoying. How much dumb extra stuff we get to before we really start getting to the actual movie, I find annoying. Uh And the Internet world isn't as compelling. And it also, even just four years later, not quite a full four years this movie's been out, so much of it feels dated. Uh I think going to the internet was a big mistake. Uh, Video games, you know, arcades, already not much of a thing in 2012. Like, there's something you can look back on and you can really understand, you know, like, what this means to people and the whole arc of it. The internet... It's very difficult because it's very current and it's also everything. (laughs) Yeah. I just think it gets too into the Internet stuff and the referencing. This movie has so many real brands in it and it just feels like advertising. The big Disney scene, which is the most egregious of it is the most like we are advertising Disney products. Look at all the great properties Disney owns. It's Iron Man and the Stormtroopers. The the most egregious one, that's for OhMyDisney.com, which doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I tried it. That particular URL, it redirects you to now it's like news.disney, I think. <laughs> so it feels really dated and misjudged in a way that Wreck-It Ralph doesn't. And it also feels really 
advertising in a gross way. And towards the end, you know, because Ralph basically becomes an Instagram or a YouTuber, like, but it's also kind of an Instagram influencer. We're kind of doing it all. Yeah, it gets a little bit into the darkness of that, but I don't know. Like, I found some contemporary reviews of the time, like Matt Singer's review literally says Ralph Breaks the Internet is about the male insecurity that is wrecking online communities. And it's like, yeah, it kind of is kind of. But that's not in a very intelligent way. No, I mean, he turns into what feels like the worst kind of boyfriend. I know Vanellope and Ralph's relationship is not boyfriend, girlfriend, but he is like the worst kind of boyfriend. No, you're absolutely right. And that's not a dynamic you want to think about with these characters. No, you don't even have to have him be insecure about their relationship as much as even, you know, you can still just work through the he wants to do the same thing every time, all the time. And she wants to do things that are different. This is a dynamic friends or, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. This is a dynamic people can have. Right. And you have to work through it and you have to compromise. Right. And you could have an interesting story with this without having it be nasty like it gets. <laughs> Absolutely correct. I, I don't find this movie very funny. I don't find it very enjoy. I find it cringeworthy in so many parts, because as you say, the story itself makes you uncomfortable where it's like, no, these characters are supposed to be friends and their friendship is supposed to matter. Right. But there is one thing we definitely have to talk about, which is the princess scene. Z. Yes. Z. <laughs> I love the princess scenes in this movie. Disney basically recognizing the way they've treated their princesses and how it can be problematic is hilarious. And supposedly Sarah Silverman really wanted to include this scene now, supposedly, because, you know, it, it plays off like a branding exercise as well. But in part because, of course, many of the voice actors who played Disney princesses were paid and treated horribly and have sued Disney uh, to get paid properly. And so in this movie, this was a chance to make things right with the surviving voice actors, all of whom come back to voice their characters. And, and I understand they got paid much better this time and got a much better contract going forward. It's a very cute scene. I like them hanging out in comfy clothes together. They clearly <laughs> had fun designing all of their outfits. Yes. Most of the jokes land pretty well. Uh, and there is, of course, above all else, we have to point out that Disney offers an official mom status joke because Vanellope says something about, I don't even have a mom. And most of the princesses, all the ones who don't chime in. Neither do we. Yes, <laughs> I appreciate it going through it. It is actually the ones that don't have a mom. Like, yes, Tiana is left out because she has a mom. Right. It is. It is not all of them. It is the ones that don't have a mom. Right. And it is a fun dynamic for the princesses to also like the video game characters kind of be on and off the clock because they they have basically a green room where they're hanging out when they don't have to be online, which, again, doesn't really make as much sense because thousands of people access a site at the same time. But, you know, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Don't think about it too much. But uh, yeah, the princess stuff is mostly successful. And again, 
You gotta love that mom status. Yep, I do. Since there isn't one at all in Wreck-It Ralph. I do also like the scene where the princesses save Ralph at the end. That's a great scene where they get to be the ones who save the big strong man. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like when you look back at it later, it doesn't feel like Oh, they just did that to be like, look, we're promoting girls, women, whatever. It actually that scene actually works for me, even looking back on it. I don't know if you've heard of the term or the phrase fridge logic. Yes. Basically, where you've seen a movie or something. And then later when you're, you know, go get a snack from the fridge, you're thinking about the movie and you're starting to be like, hey, wait a minute. This does not fit together right. Ralph breaks the Internet, suffers badly from that, where The first time you watch it, especially, there is definitely stuff you can enjoy and you'll be like, yeah, it was not too bad. But then you think about it later and you're the more you think about it, the worse it gets. Right. But even the first time we were like, why isn't there another fun villain? Where's Calhoun and Felix? How come it feels like you could cut out the first half of this two hour movie and you wouldn't be missing much? Yeah, but it does. The more you think about it the worse it is. And I think it's especially bad as a Wreck-It Ralph sequel. If this had just been an internet movie with different characters, I still would have been annoyed by like the Facebook scene. (laughs) But broadly speaking, it might have worked. There's a lot of good ideas in here. And we we should say the animation is often incredible. Gorgeous, but also stylized in a wonderful way, much like this movie. Indeed. You know, they have some fun video game stuff. The slaughter race, especially player characters, moves (laughs) so much like the glitchy Grand Theft Auto character models that never look quite right. It's perfect. And all the Internet characters, like they come up with more great visual ideas, like all the people using the Internet being represented by basically Funko Pops, (laughs) but these square headed weirdos, Uh, the actual scope of the Internet, like where they have all the buildings and stuff is a technical achievement. Yeah. Animation wise, it's great. Otherwise, it kind of feels like some direct to video nonsense. Like I got the (laughs) same feeling watching this that I get watching that stuff, even up to I I couldn't watch it in one sitting. I, I just couldn't. Ah, well, we wouldn't recommend that movie. But mom, let me ask you something. Just off the top of my head, just thought of this right now. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Would you recommend Wreck-It Ralph from 2012? And would you show it to a child such as Candlehead? (laughs) Would you show it to Candlehead specifically? I would indeed recommend it. I would probably show it to Candlehead, though, you know, might want to cover Candlehead's eyes at the scene where Candlehead's candle goes out. Might be traumatic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you for going along with me on that. As for a normal child, um, I would think that a very small child, I probably wouldn't show it to because I might be scared by some of the stuff. I think a lot of the cybug stuff. There is some peril that I feel like might be a bit intense for some really little kids. But otherwise, you know, once once a kid is like probably seven or eight. You know, you would have to know your kid. Obviously, kids who are extra scaredy cats, give them a little longer. But <laughs> again, confirm this for me or or deny it. But uh, you wouldn't have shown this to me, right? Not when you were really little. No, no. I feel like at the age when I was scared of Ursula, I would have been scared of King Candy for sure. For sure. In his final form. Yes. Oh, yeah. And you? 
I too would give a very qualified recommendation for a child like most of it's probably fine, but you're going to want to make a decision about those last scenes and the the cyborg apocalypse. Mm-hmm. But of course, I'd recommend this movie. All I've done this whole time is recommend this movie. It's, it's a great movie. It holds up so well, and it's just a blast. And this is a really great uh, emotional story about friendship and, and work-life balance. And yeah. Root beer, alcoholism, <laughs> and, you know, what the measure of a good person and a bad person that's also hysterical and beautifully animated and has a fun soundtrack and, you know, and a few video game references. Just a few. <laughs> that's just icing on the cake, or as we say, that's just candle on the head. <laughs> so that's our discussion on Wreck-It Ralph, and to a lesser extent, Ralph Breaks the Internet. We'll be back next week, also talking about two animated canon movies, <laughs> with Frozen. What do you think of this one, Mom? I'm kind of finding it hard to believe we've made it this far. <laughs> I know it is kind of the like signpost for the revival era. This is this is the one that said Disney is back and stronger than ever, whether you like it or not. So join us next week for that. And remember, you still have one week left to get in your mailbag questions. We are taking those through the end of July at me, mom, mouse at gmail.com. That's M-E-M-O-M-M-O-U-S-E at gmail.com. Until the end of July, we'll be accepting questions. And in August, we will be recording our final mailbag, which will double as a discussion of all the other Disney stuff we've wanted to talk about before we say goodbye. But we'll see you next week for Frozen. And until then, I'm me. And I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse. I'm gonna wreck it! (laughs) 